So let's turn to the Word of God. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with the 12th verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. This is the application of verses 1 uh, through 11. Um, this is what Christ's humiliation and exaltation should look like in the church. You can, uh, you could have a, a, you couldn't have a better lifelong meditation than to constantly meditate upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's, um, there is no, no um, way to ever plumb the depths of the person of Christ and what he did on behalf of his people in saving us according to the plan of salvation. We talked about this morning the um, last Sunday night we talked mainly about his humiliation about his setting aside of his divine prerogatives never never losing his divine prerogative but uh, setting them uh, aside and then uh, perfectly fulfilling our righteousness. I always think, when I think of the person and work of Christ, I think of that great um, man of God who was so used of God to um, bring about the um, continuing Presbyterian Church, J. Gresham Machen, who, who uh, labored tirelessly for the gospel, and at the end of his life, he's from Philadelphia, uh, he grew up, he was born and, and raised in Macon, Georgia. He went up to uh, um, Princeton Seminary, was excommunicated for his uh, stand on the authority of Scripture and, and the uh, role, uh, the proper role of the church in, in, in uh, preaching the gospel. There's so many, so many aspects of his life. But 
what's instructive to me about J. Gresham Machen is his, his end of life. And um, he goes in the middle of winter to South Dakota, uh, Georgia boy, via Philadelphia. He's on a mission trip to South Dakota to strengthen churches there, and he catches pneumonia, and he dies. And but before he dies, he sends a telegram back to his best friend at Westminster Seminary, John Murray, Dr. John Murray, and says, I am so grateful for the active obedience of Christ. What, what, does that, what does that even mean? It means he's so grateful that Jesus, in his life, perfectly fulfilled the law of God. Why, why is that important? It's important because that's the, very, that's the whole basis of the substitutionary death of Jesus on our behalf. I, uh, I used an illustration this morning. Why? My, my wife is probably going to kill me. Is this on? It is. But um, I promise, Nick, I, 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 I thought of an illustration mid-sermon, which is always <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> my wife is an artist. And it, the only thing worse in my handwriting is my drawing. So I'm going to have her draw three circles. <laughs> <laughs> You can do it, Denise. <laughs> she, she and I, she at the University of Arkansas, I at the uh, University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi. Um, <laughs> put a throne there, throne there, and a throne there, and a throne there. You remember this? And this was, a, this was a part of a track that's a cross on the throne. This is the illustration. Now, can you draw this um, perfect little circles there? Oh, uh, in, yeah, all in harmony. You know, everything is just perfectly in harmony in this person's Christian life. They, they receive Christ, uh, you know, so, so this, is a, this is a life with Christ on the throne of life and everything in perfect <laughs> harmony. And then this is someone who has Christ on the, oh, I'm sorry. It's Christ <laughs> off, he's inside the circle. He's in the life off the throne. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. That's, that's the way it's There's important. a person on there. And person itself. See, she remembers it better than I do. <laughs> And then it's disorder. Can you draw some disorder things? <laughs> Just think of me, and uh, you'll get it. And this is the same way. And this is the same way. Disorder in here. And so the the idea of this track was you ask the person how how uh, do you want your you know what you go through this explanation. This is what with what looks like with. Uh, Christ on the throne and everything is perfectly ordered and wonderful in your life or you you have Christ outside and everything is disordered and and even if you're bold you might even talk about eternal judgment here but then there's this other circle with you on the throne and Christ off the throne but in the life you're going to make it heaven supposedly but everything is disordered and so you would share this track in hopes of, of, of moving people to hear. I think this was actually the last one. 
I think we, we have them in reverse order. I think we did, yeah. So if you're dyslexic, you get <laughs> That's my call. And, and uh, I must have shared that a hundred times in college. And I would say 90 of those times, this is the one that everybody preferred. Now, there's a problem with that, in that it is not biblical. It is not the Christian life. It is actually uh, totally contradictory to the gospel. Um, sometimes this uh, is called the doctrine of the carnal Christian or the it was presented that way, you know, um, someone who, and, and the Apostle Paul talks about some of you Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians talks about some of you are walking, are you not carnal, or you're not walking like mere men? Actually, what he's saying there is not, you're, not, you're not a carnal Christian, he's saying you're not a Christian. You may claim a profession of faith, but in reality you don't possess faith, because if you possess faith, you would live a life of repentance, which brings me back to the text. This, therefore, is there to illustrate his great picture of the uh, active obedience of Christ in his uh, humiliation of himself, and then all the way to death on the cross, and then his exaltation, his resurrection. And on that basis, the Apostle Paul does, like he does in all of his epistles, begins to apply it. What does this mean? What does the gospel mean in your life? And here he is emphatic. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only when I'm here watching you, but much more when I'm gone, and I'm gone now, I'm in prison in Rome, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For the, for the gospel at work in you is both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Um, We live, in, we live in an age where there is so little understanding of, of obedience, period. Of seeking to follow uh, God's commandments or any commandments for that matter. I, I know this um, just from <laughs> observing life. I also know it from, from uh, ministering to uh, young people over the years. And watching those who are engaged in trying to employ people, they're 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 really maybe someone can help me out on this. But basically, they're, they're, I'm sure there are institutions that help with this. But but what I've read and, and what I've observed is this is a this is true, or maybe a, what I call a truism. It's mostly true in, in terms of application of life. But but really, there are only two arenas of life where people learn to follow instructions. 
Maybe, maybe I should add, add one, but, but, I'm, but it's the military. The military is basically the only institution left, or one of the few institutions left, where people have to learn to follow orders and to do it uh, immediately and exactly. The other one that's close behind is academia, academia, uh, not academia, but athletics. You have to learn to, to follow instructions and even there you see how often that breaks down and uh, falls apart uh, when uh, a, a coach uh, cannot maintain discipline and i suppose it's true to a certain extent in academia um, in, in good institution there's a, an accountability uh, that is absolutely essential for uh, the learning process those are kingdom principles that come from a spiritual reality based on your relationship with Christ through the faith that he gives you because of his finished work of, of coming into this world, laying aside his deity, living perfectly, obeying God's law perfectly, meeting every external demand, every commandment of God perfectly in the place of his people. Um, on that basis, because of what Christ has done for you in his finished work, you are called to live a life of obedience. The apostle Paul says he's observed that and to, to them, to that, to that point. Uh, he hopes it continues when he's gone. And, um, but, it, but it's work. This shows quickly to us the place of works. Notice carefully, we do not work for our salvation. That, that is man's religion, man's uh, way of controlling people and exercising control over them is to create way, uh, uh, works that are necessary to be performed for salvation. The Bible is clear. Paul has been emphatically clear in all of his messages, including the message to the Philippians, that salvation is not by performance, that no one can perform the righteousness of God. Uh, that is why we desperately need, just as J. Gresham Machen, the great theologian, uh, needed, we need the active obedience of Christ. His perfect obedience to the point of the shameful death on the cross in order to secure our standing with God. So, the, the word salvation implies rescue, it implies his grace applied to our life, it implies everything that flows from the life of, Je of Jesus into us. And obedience is not something that we dread. This, this illustration points out that this misunderstanding that we have in popular Christianity that obedience is something to dread. It's a, God is a cosmic killjoy that wants to take away all of our fun. 
if you are a born again child of God, his spirit resides in you, then Jesus resides in you, and your delight becomes to obey him. It is a joy. We obey then, not because we have to, but because we want to. It flows from us when the Spirit of God is at work in us uh, to every aspect of our life. Um, this idea of work here is a word that means working thoroughly and completely to completion. Uh, it is uh, a message that Paul also underlines in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Everyone who's raised in the evangelical church knows Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I shouldn't presume that, but I hope you know it. For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of works, not, not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. It's solely and completely by the grace of God. But we stop often at verse 9, and we don't go on to verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works as well. And the order is essential to our salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as a result, the Holy Spirit works in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, those good works that are essential, that obedience uh, that, is, uh, that comes from the life of Christ in us that the Holy Spirit has placed in us. Um, it's, it's so vital to get that, uh, those two things in harmony. If you, if you put works in front of that, then you destroy the gospel. And that is the human tendency, to put works in the place of the gift of God, which is faith alone in Christ, which saves us. And what is the purpose of those good works? It's the same purpose that we spoke of this morning in the preceding verses. What is the purpose of our salvation? The purpose is the glory of God. That's why we, we start our, our catechism, our shorter catechism. If you're not familiar with our shorter catechism, I, I pray and hope you make yourself familiar with it. But so, you, you could do no worse to, to, than to just learn, um, well, I guess you could do worse, but you should learn the first question at least, what is the chief end of man? What is man's chief end? What is his purpose? What is your purpose in life? And the answer is man's chief end or chief purpose in life is to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. That's the purpose of of. of good works. It's for you to glorify God, for you to enjoy Him. What does that look like? It goes further. Verse 14. 
do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you might be blameless and innocent children of God, verse 15, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. <clears throat> Paul is not making words up. The Holy Spirit is giving him these words, but he's giving him these words that are already given in Scripture, right? He's quoting Moses. He's using and incorporating Moses' words from Exodus 4, from Deuteronomy 32. He's mixing them in. He's, he's reminding the, the Philippian Christians of their tie to the people of God in the Old Covenant, to Israel. And as people who are, are placed in the New Covenant, he's reminding them, them of the disobedience of Israel. Part of this is Exodus 14. I mean, they've just been delivered from the bondage and slavery of Egypt. Moses is, has uh, done these ten amazing miracles to, to soften Pharaoh's heart, culminating with the uh, Passover and the, the, the taking of the firstborn of Egypt, everyone who didn't have the, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lentils, which again prefigures Christ's death. And, and they, they left and they get to uh, the, the edge of the sea, the Red Sea. And what are they doing? They've seen God miraculously deliver them over and over. What do they do? They grumble and they complain. You've just brought us out here to die. And how often is our Christian life marked by that kind of attitude where we grumble and we complain against God's providential circumstances that he places us in. He goes on. I mean, at the, I heard the end of the Sunday school. If you haven't, if you did, if you haven't had the, the privilege of being in the adult Sunday school class and hearing Dr. Robert Godfrey, I encourage you to borrow those lectures on Deuteronomy. What I've heard has been amazing. But I think he was talking about Deuteronomy 32 at the end, Song of Moses, um, talking about the attitude of Israel after they had been delivered. And Moses just recounting those events in chapter 32. That's quoted here too by Paul. Uh, grumbling and disputing uh, about what God is doing in the moment. And how, how much that is our tendency. Uh, how quickly we go to those, uh, to that, that part of our life, rather than trusting God's providence in the place he has put us in to trust him at any given moment. Disputing and grumbling, it's not only a, 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 um, a um, Hebrew, hearkening uh, back to the Hebrew scriptures, which it certainly is, it's also a hallmark of the Greek culture. I think, I think the word is um, the same word that we have for argument here and disputes. 
And how often the, uh, in the, and that was the way the Aristotelian uh, logicians, but they, they uh, made, made their name by having the best argument. And we should be always ready to give a, a, an answer for the hope that it was within us. But most of our arguments are disputes about things that aren't the gospel. They're matters of our own personal taste or opinion rather than the gospel. I mean, 40 years in the ministry in one place, you know, you think you would learn something after a while, but I, I learned how, how terribly susceptible I am to these things. Classic in art is the carpet, the color of the carpet. I've, I've been guilty of arguing over the color. I want to stand here to confess. The, these things that we take up so much emotion about that aren't the gospel, we need to repent about and put those things aside. Whether they are matters of, of, of what kind of music we have or what, what kind of um, activities we have or programs we have uh, all those things flow from the gospel they must in order for us to do what God has called us to do in Christ we are to hold fast and we are to center the life of, of Christ in our church upon his word and what he says to us in it, we're to hold fast the word of life. And it's an interesting translation. We're to hold it fast. Like we're to hold on to it tightly. That's, that's one meaning. But that, that same expression can have an entirely different meaning, which is to hold it forth. So some of the accommodators, some of the scholars say, well, what is it? Is it holding it fast or is it holding it forth? And I think the Holy Spirit deliberately used language that could be interpreted two ways. We are to hold it fast in order to hold it forth. I, uh, I love our vows, the solemn vows that ministers and elders and deacons take that we subscribe to the infallible and errant word of God is our only rule of faith and practice. Mm. Um, you would think that would be a given, uh, but even that is often under assault in our day. Uh, again, what, is, what does God's word say? What does the Bible say? What, how are we to, what does Jesus say? Because that's what, when we read the Bible and we faithfully apply the word of God, we are listening for his word. And that results in labor that is not in vain. Um, again, in contrast to going through life uh, totally controlled by the moment, our emotions, our feelings, uh, is, is not how we're called to live. We're called to hold fast to the word in order that we can hold it out to those who are lost and dying. 
and in desperate need of the truth. And we appear, when we do that, as lights <coughs> in the world. We're to, be, we're to be like our Lord Jesus, who was the light of the world. Um, Jesus, uh, John, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, talks about the ministry of John the Baptist. He came into the world, John the Baptist did, and he was not that light, but he came to point to the light. And the light of the world is Jesus. And Jesus said it of himself explicitly in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He is the only one that can save this lost world and the people in it. Um, I just ask you what, are you, what are you searching for? Are you stumbling around in the dark? Are you wondering about what God wants you to do? With your life? Well, you begin with Jesus. Because everything else but Jesus in this wicked world is a lie. He died in order to save you from death and hell, not only death and hell, but he, 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 he came in order to give you life and light, and wisdom, and guidance. And why did he do it again? For the same reason that we've repeated over and over, to give glory to himself, to give glory to the Father, to give glory to the Holy Spirit, to give glory to God. All of us have been, I know I have, as, as former military taken up and, and enthralled with the war in Ukraine and the horror of it and also the fascination. That was, uh, that, it seems like it's the war that uh, us old cold warriors were meant to fight but we didn't and uh, to wonder and to wonder about. And, and again, I'm glad I'm a Calvinist. Because what might have been happened, and it's been a good thing. But I, but I can't help but notice the difference in the way those armies operate, from the way our armies are trained to operate. It's a, it's a, it's a whole different world. Um, but one of the expressions that's fascinated me from the Ukrainians, and that is. Um, they, they, they always end their talk about their patriotic speech with glory to Ukraine. Slava Ukraine. And I think, I wonder what, Amy looked it up. Uh, I think it's Slava Bob. Glory to God. That's how they say God. That's who we should be concerned about. They're concerned about the glory of their nation, and the, and that's a and it's a wonder. And I'm, please don't misunderstand me. It's a wonderful thing to care about your country and to, to love your country. And, and as, as citizens of heaven, we should be the very best citizens on earth. 
But what should consume us is not glory for our country, but glory to God and because of what he has done for us. It is a glorious thing to see young men willing to die on the battlefield for their country. It is even more glorious to see young men and women around the world willing to die for the glory of God. This is what Paul is saying. He says, I'm, I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. He knows. He's sitting in the Roman prison. He's sitting in uh, what would be the Pentagon of Rome. He is in prison. He's chained to a, a Roman soldier 24 hours a day under house arrest, waiting, awaiting the sentence of death. And he thinks of it as being poured out as a drink offering. You know, the drink offerings were, they're so, were so interesting. Uh, you bring everything to, the first fruits of everything were to be brought to God. And the drink offering was brought, and it was uh, wine or strong drink, which I understand is a kind of wine. And it was brought to the burning animal sacrifice, and it was poured out over the animal while it's burning and hits the coals and it's just this big whoosh of steam and vapor rising up. This is the image in, in Paul's mind about himself. When he goes, he's going, to, he's going to go for the glory of God. He's going to be poured out. And that, that drink offering is going to be quickly evaporated into the air. But for him... It's going to mean being his presence. And he does it as a sacrificial offering of their faith. It gives him the greatest joy. I am glad and I rejoice with you all that I'm able to give my life on your behalf. How is your joy? tonight. You know, the, the first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Indeed, we're to fly that banner of love over us. His banner over us is love. Indeed. But right after it is joy. Joy is the abiding sense of the presence of God and the knowledge that He delights in his children. He delights in you. Do you have that joy? Do you rejoice in the, in the opportunity that God has given you to glorify him and to serve his people? Paul was excited that he was able to have his life poured out on the altar of God in service. As we come to uh, the Lord's table tonight. We're reminded of the death of Christ, his sacrifice, and what he has done for us, and how he poured himself out as a drink offering uh, in order for us to be with him forever, but most importantly, to glorify God with him forever. Father, thank you for 
our Lord Jesus and the opportunity that you give us uh, tonight to worship by offering up our prayers, by reading your word and expounding your word to sit under its teaching. And then, Father, most, most preciously tonight, in addition, to feed upon Christ by faith uh, in the Lord's Supper. And we pray your blessing upon each one here. We pray if there's anyone here who's yet to um, turn from sin and self and self-righteousness to you, who has some, anyone who is uh, yet to, to repent and turn to, to Jesus, that this would be the night that you are pleased to bring them to yourself. And Father, we pray this in, in the precious holy name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.